The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What happened? The containers you were checking fell on you. You're lucky to be alive. Doctor, I will not attempt to leave sick bay without your approval. The restraining field is not necessary. Worf, there is no restraining field. But I can't move my legs. I know. You can't move because one of the containers shattered seven of your vertebrae and crushed your spinal cord. I'm afraid there's no way we can repair this kind of injury. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 5th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And today we'll be asking the question, does Obama care? Does he care about insurance? Does he care about taxes? Does he care about the general welfare, health, power, or freedom? Among other questions, 519-661-3600, the number you can call to join in on the conversation. And Robert, you are also going to look at one angle of this that has to do with death and taxes. The whole show is going to be about Obamacare, Bob, and death and taxes, uh, the certainty of death and taxes. And, you know, we're working on eliminating death. Yes. Now we've got to work on eliminating taxes. (laughs) We have to worry about taxes. And this particular bill is very, very troubling, and I think that everybody in the in the entire world should be uh, versed themselves on this new decision by the United States Supreme Court, which basically allows the government to tax people for not doing something. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. That recent Supreme Court decision upholding the uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, as it's called, so-called Obamacare, has, much to my surprise at least, received... What I think is very little attention here in Canada. Have you seen many articles about it? Seen it on TV? You talk about it? Only, only what I've really got here in front of me with these few it's not from many. the Free Press and from the National Post. And most are sort of supportive, which is scaring me, yeah. except for one or two. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. It didn't really meet the, uh, you know, the talk shows weren't talking about it a lot, from my understanding. And... Um, You'd think that we would. I mean, we're a country where private health insurance and private relationship between a doctor and his patient have been outlawed. You'd think that the papers would be filled with news and commentary on the subject. After all, the majority decision written by conservative jurist John G. Roberts, appointed by President George uh, W. Bush, Mm -hmm. reads like any disjointed intellectually dishonest dishonest screed which could just as well have come from any of our newspaper editorial boards or government ministries. I mean... This sounds like us down there. that's the Supreme Court. That's the Supreme Court and Obama. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that that this affinity is not being played up more. Maybe we've always liked the fact that we were different than the Americans. We could always say, oh, we can't have American health care. Well, you know what? 
we got it, <laughs> or they got ours, or one of the two. Well, they had ours too. I'll be getting into that. Oh, they, a they, later have, on. they got Medicare and Medicaid as well, and the, the doctors and hospitals cannot refuse treatment. Um, so, I mean, they've had socialist medicine down there for a long time, or slave medicine, whatever you want to call it. You know, the, the idea of doctors and hospitals not refusing treatment has always been a practice, regardless of the type of uh, politics in the country, in a given country. That's just a given. You didn't need to legislate. No, you didn't need to legislate that. That was a given at a certain point. And there were lots of other ways to accommodate the payment of it. Now, you've got a number of press clippings there, but one struck my mind. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this editor has been stirred enough to comment on our neighbor's move to the left, but it's not the liberal Toronto Star. It is, of all the papers, the Financial Post, subsidiary of the National Post, perhaps the most conservative national paper in the country. Now, of course, if you've been a listener to this program, you'll this will not come as much as a, of a surprise since we consistently identify Canadian conservatives as being the most ardent defenders of socialism. Maybe from their inaction. <laughs> That we are we are almost taxed by conservative inaction. Now, the American-born Diane Francis, however, could uh, very well be considered an ardent defender of communism, and here's why. At the risk of introducing a non-second, where I'll quote from uh, an article of Francis from the Financial Post of December fourteenth, two thousand and nine. Quote, the inconvenient truth overhanging the UN's Copenhagen conference is not that the climate is warming or cooling, but that humans are overpopulating the world. A planetary law such as China's one-child policy is the only way to reverse the disastrous global birth rate. Unquote from Diane Francis, editor of the, of the Financial Post. Now compare this unbelievable support of communist tyranny in the name of environmentalism to her glowing support of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision upholding Obamacare in her editorial of this past June the 29th. Quote, Universal health care is not just smart and fair social policy, it is also smart economic policy. <laughs> Unquote. And, quote, Whatever the opposition proposes had better address the anxiety and needs of the populace. Unquote. And finally, quote, The news was greeted with relief in my family. Remember, she's an American, or was, came from America, and they will now be able to take a vacation and go out to eat. This is the effect of social safety nets. When the biggest fears people have are removed, spending and investing will result. Unbelievable verbiage coming from the Financial Post editor. Well, Could have very know, well have been Mao Zedong saying the same stuff. I once believed Diane Francis was sort of on the right, and I went to see her at the convention center here in London, mm-hmm. probably 15, 20 years ago. And the first thing she says to all of us is that she moved up from the States to mooch off our health care system. That's what she is, a moocher. <laughs> yeah, and that's basically what she liked about Canada, you know, that we had this health care system. And I'm sitting there, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, that's what you came up here for. You're the right winger. Who's speaking on the other side of this issue? And I just, from that day on, I just couldn't read her stuff with the same uh, level of uh, credibility anymore. No, I think her expertise in matters economic are suspect. It's frightening. I, I, I don't get it. Yeah. She obviously doesn't have clue one about individual rights. And without an understanding of individual rights, she, by implication, hasn't got clue one about the moral basis for capitalism. And by that implication, economics. So who would listen to her when she talks about economics if she doesn't ha- right. understand the moral basis for him. But she's not alone. Most conservatives, most politicians, and most economists haven't got the foggiest idea about morality or individual rights. 
But this shouldn't excuse her. To put it in perspective, to put it simply, her needs and those of her family or those of the economy at large do not create a right to rob, or to put it in her language, tax others. Francis' logic is that whatever is good for the economy, the environment, or fill-in-the-blank, is acceptable, no matter how many lives are lost or ruined. This is totally um, off, off the wall. This is unbelievable coming from a Canadian um, journalist. And it also, even from an, especially from an American. She's supposed to be an American to begin with. She should understand individual rights and the relationship of that very thing yeah. to the health care she values so well, much. Ignorance apparently crosses borders. Just as she did. <laughs> <laughs> now that brings us to the decision of the court itself, which found that Obamacare is a tax for not buying health insurance. We all have uh, experience of how government taxes us for taking part in some activity or another, be it smoking, drinking, earning a living, etc. The list is endless. And there are tax benefits associated with activities such as having children, getting an education, marrying, having aboriginal genes, all benefits. But to tax somebody for not doing something like buying health insurance, this is unique. Perhaps unprecedented and without a doubt, slavery. What's slavery, Bob? Well, that's when you're forced to do something against your will for the benefit of someone else to, the, to your own loss. Without compensation. Yeah. Right. That's slavery, which, by the way, is a violation of Section 13 or the amendment, 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Funny they didn't bring that one up. Interesting. <laughs> this is an extract from the opinion of Judge John G. Roberts. Quote, under the mandate, if an individual does not maintain health insurance, the only consequence is that he must, be, he must make an additional payment to the IRS when he pays his taxes. That, according to the government, means the mandate can be regarded as establishing a condition, not owning health insurance, that triggers a tax, the required payment to the IRS. Under that theory, the mandate is not a legal command to buy insurance. Rather, it makes going without insurance just another thing the government taxes, like buying gasoline or earning income, unquote. That from a Supreme Court judge. And the amazing thing is the earning income shouldn't be in there either. His train of thought can only be described as flippant, illogical, anti-human, and callous. Obama has decreed that approximately 9 million Americans those who currently don't have insurance and are working or paying taxes, either buy private health insurance or be taxed anywhere from $695 at the lowest end to about $4,800 for failing to, in his words, share the responsibility. That's what Obama calls this tax. Of course, he didn't call it a tax before the judge called it a tax, but he said it's sharing the responsibility. Sounds like we can hear that for any government program. This, while it may be, uh, you know, constitutional under Article 1, Section 1 of their Constitution, which allows Congress to impose taxes, contradicts the very spirit of the U.S.'s Declaration of Independence and its Bill of Rights, which define an individual's right to exist for his own sake with rights to his life, liberty, and property. Not slavery. Further from Judge Roberts, quote, but imposition of a tax nonetheless leaves an individual with a lawful choice to do or not to do a certain act, so long as he's willing to pay a tax levied on that choice, unquote. So, in other words, you have a choice. 
And choice is good, isn't it? What could be wrong with choice? Either buy the insurance or we tax you. There's your choice. Either pay the tax or we'll beat down your door, steal what you own, and put you in jail for failure to pay your tax. Such fun, isn't it wonderful? Such choices. This is, this is why it doesn't matter what words you use to describe certain concepts. People who have evil intentions will twist those words no matter what they are. And that's why epistemology is so important and why you have to, you know, if, there, if there's a word that's nebulous, define it before you use it. He's just destroying yeah. the word choice. Mm-hmm. More from Judge Roberts. Quote, First and more importantly, it's abundantly clear the Constitution does not guarantee that individuals may avoid taxation through inactivity. A capitation, after all, is a tax that everyone must pay simply for existing, and capitations are expressly contemplated by the Constitution. The Court today holds that our Constitution protects us from federal regulation under the Commerce Clause so long as we abstain from regulated activity. But from its creation, the Constitution has made no such promise with respect to taxes. See letter from Benjamin Franklin to M. Leroy, November 13, 1789, And here's where Judge Roberts quotes Ben Franklin. Quote, Our new constitution is now established, but in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Unquote from (laughs) Ben Franklin and Judge Roberts. So, Bob, the court concedes that we can't tax you for living under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, but we can tax you for living under Article 1, Section 1. There, we got you. To quote Monty Python, we've run rings around you logically. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's a game to them. The effrontery of Justice Roberts to misquote Franklin. And his famous quote, by the way, actually reads, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. He left out that whole clause. The point of his quote was to demonstrate the impermanent nature of the Constitution, perhaps its flaws, and cynically lament the burden of taxation. He wasn't glowingly yeah, saying, he wasn't hey, death and taxes, it. yeah, yes. we, we love death and taxes. We're certain about those things. No, he was well, lamenting both. Yeah, Benjamin Franklin cynically. said it, therefore we can do it. Yeah. yeah. Justice Roberts and his cohorts are practicing nothing more than refined legal chicanery. The end result can only be poorer health care, poorer Americans, a future loophole for a myriad of new taxes, oh, and a happier insurance company. That's for sure. Now, we're going to a break, and uh, when we come back, Bob, you've got something to say about this topic. Before we go to that break, though, I just wanted to to say something else about uh, Diane Francis's article, which I have in in my hand here, this one, how she thinks Obamacare is going to be good for the U.S. And she points out that uh, She says, the good news is that win or lose, President Obama has succeeded after decades of attempts in providing the type of health care the rest of the developed world provides. And, you know, what does the rest of the the developed world depend on? Upon the U.S. for its innovations in medical care. Not that every country doesn't have its own, but uh, those countries that have the most free health care systems have the most innovations. And we'll be getting into that shortly. Then she concludes, despite an irrational hatred of governments, America's private sector health experiment has failed abysmally and is on its way out. Well, there is a huge mistake. There is no private sector health experiment down there. Experiment. It's not an experiment. And if, if you understand how the private sector in healthcare down there is regulated, which we'll understand shortly, there's no way in the world you could even come close to calling it private. Again, what they're dealing with there is not socialism, but fascism. And that's what something people don't see. 
They confuse it with capitalism because property is left in the hands of doctors, although the doctors are regulated both by government and by insurance companies told what to do with it. So, and then she says, um, the proof exists, oh, she says, governments outside the U.S. deliver medical care better and cheaper. The proof exists all over the world, except in the minds of partisans who would defend the indefensible. This is unbelievable. What? Unbelievable that here we have an economist um, editor, right, for the Financial Post, basically saying that socialized medicine is cheaper. Well, in Canada... Diane Francis. It's free. There's how cheap it is. Do you believe that it's actually free? But it's, it doesn't cost us a cent? It's going to bankrupt both the U.S. and Canada, and that's what we have to <laughs> Unbelievable. get into now. Anyways, coming up at this break, we're going to hear from, um, this is from CNN, 2009, uh, Obama himself, basically arguing that insurance companies are bad and government is good. And on the other side of the bumper, we'll be coming back to hear Dr. Tom Dorman, who um, we've played on this show before. Yes. And this is from the ISIL conference in 2000, held here at the University of Western Ontario. We will return after that. Uh, we just heard from Lori about how she can't find an insurance company that will cover her because of her medical condition. She's not alone. A recent report actually shows that in the past three years, over 12 million Americans were discriminated against by insurance companies because of a pre-existing condition. Either the insurance company refused to cover the person, or they dropped their coverage when they got sick and they needed it most, or they refused to cover a specific illness or condition, or they charged higher premiums and out-of-pocket costs. No one holds these companies accountable for these practices. One woman testified that an insurance company would not cover her internal organs because of an accident she had when she was five years old. Think about that. That covers a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, they're only going to cover your skin. Dermatology, that's covered. Nothing else. Another lost his coverage in the middle of chemotherapy because the insurance company discovered he had gallstones that he hadn't known about when he applied for insurance. And that is wrong. And that will change when we pass health care reform. That is going to be a problem. things we hear is that sickness is unfair. <clears throat> I suppose it is. But it's a state of nature. We regard it as self-evident that all men were born equal, right? Were they equally healthy? Do they have the same genetic uh, 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 prospects? Of course not. It's self-evident that we are all different. The other thing is we should care for each other, and I think that's a fine sentiment. But as soon as it's converted from voluntary to compulsory, it's no longer a sentiment, and it's a tool for control. So what, is, what we're witnessing is a psychological influence on society taking advantage of natural human uh, affiliations, uh, family relations, kindness, altruism, 
and converting that to a compulsory situation, the collective responsibility, and finally doctoring is managed by the state. Bob, that um, interview there, or that speech by Obama, mm -hmm. really struck me because, well, first of all, again, his humorous and flippant attitude to the whole thing, making people laugh over something like the uh, healthcare system there. He makes it sound immoral that an insurance company won't cover somebody for a pre-existing condition. Well, I don't think he understands insurance. Or maybe he does, and he just hopes we don't. Because, you know, an insurance company is not going to say, yes, we'll, we'll take your uh, premium to cover you, say, for example, uh, uh, your heart condition. Even though you've had five heart attacks, you know, we'll, we'll insure you against a heart attack. That's that's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. Of course not. Of course, no insurance company does does that. It's not business. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Well, actually, they do if they're allowed to charge, they charge the a different proper rate. premium. Yes, and that's what Obama is going to prevent them from doing. Right. And you know, smokers even could buy health insurance. And if you bought it early enough in life, if you looked at the difference in premium, it wasn't that big. It that's was, why it was like a buck a month or something like that. Right? Remember when I was quoting from John Roberts? He used the word capitation. A capitation is basically a poll tax. Everybody pays the same. And that's what Obama and the Supreme Court are getting at. That insurance companies are saying to one person who has a very poor health history, you have to pay higher premiums because you're a greater risk to us. Mm -hmm. And the other shareholders and, and, and insurance people. And Obama's saying, oh, that's not fair. You have to uh, use capitation or a poll tax. Everybody has to pay the same amount. When that's it, totally illogical. Well, the whole concept of, this isn't like our plan at all. Maybe that's why the media is not so excited about it. All Obama did was pass a law telling you, forcing you to go out and buy health insurance. Which, you know... <laughs> from a government me? exchange, by the way, a yeah, state-run exchange. That, that's just amazing. But, you know, realistically, insurance and medicine are the two subjects that you never really actually hear discussed in the Obamacare debate. Or in any discussion of universal socialized medicine, for that matter. You know, Obama says it's not fair to charge higher-risk people a higher-rate insurance. And I'm thinking, well, that's insane on the face of it. To fail to do so is to have an insurance system that will inevitably fail itself. Or, in other words, to not have an insurance system. That's the guarantee of that, which is not what Obamacare is in the first place. It's not an insurance plan. It seems to me it's a first-dollar coverage kind of deal again, too. So... You know, I'm, I've been reading a book that I want to do um, <clears throat> a review of later, and I'm going to be talking about it a lot in the next section, and that is um, John Stoss's late, latest book, just came out this year, called No, They Can't, and he's, a, he's dedicated one chapter of that book to the healthcare system. And he points out in that book that, you know, such one-size-fits-all rules take away insurance companies' best tool, which is risk-based pricing. Risk-based pricing encourages us to take better care of ourselves. And then, of course, there's the medicine itself. It, too, suffers under socialized confiscation schemes. As, as Stossel says here, he says, if government ran health care, medical advances would slow to a crawl because governments do not innovate. They just keep doing what they did last year. Right? We cannot know what we might have had. More modernization will happen in medicine if only and only if more of us spend our own money for care, he says. And this is absolutely true. You know, as soon as government gets into something, it's frozen, like culture. 
You know, you, you want to have an Aboriginal culture? Well, that's going to stay in the Stone Age forever as long as the government recognizes it for what it is now or what it was a century or two ago. And while other cultures move ahead, that one will be frozen hmm. thanks to government recognition. Interesting, though. And so, but everything the government touches turns to ice. It just freezes <laughs> and doesn't move, right? And, uh, you know, in his latest book, No, They Can't, John Stossel refers at some length, in fact, to the Canadian health care system and to Canada's economy in his argument against Obamacare. And he writes, and this is interesting, Despite the rationing, polls show most Canadians like their free health care. But Dr. David Gretzer reminded me that most people, when they get the survey phone call, aren't sick. <laughs> that's, when, that's when they do those surveys. If they only surveyed people in hospitals, I wonder what kind of results they would get. Shirley Haley's doctor told her she had only a few weeks to live because a blocked artery, this is out of Stossel's book, kept her from digesting food. Yet Canadian officials, eager to be responsible and save the country some money, declared her surgery elective. Under the Canadian system, if your surgery is elective, you wait. So Shirley came to America for treatment. The only thing elective about this surgery was, I elected to live, she said. More than a million and a half Canadians say they can't find a family doctor. In Canada, the average emergency room wait is 23 hours. In Canada, we did find one area of medicine that offered easy access to cutting-edge technology. In these clinics, you can get a CT scan, endoscopy, thoroscopy, laparoscopy, I don't even know what that is, etc., quickly. Unfortunately, these clinics are open only to patients with four legs. Veterinarian medicine is still private in Canada. Dogs can get a CT scan in one day. For people, the waiting list is a month. Doesn't that kind of tell a, tell a story? And yet, Canadians are happy with this, you see. Yeah, the story is that socialism bad, capitalism good. Well, free is, free is good and paying is bad. That's, that's the real story at the bottom of it. And unfortunately, there is no free to this. You know, as you were saying in the first part, most laws, most just laws, say don't do X. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Come to think of it, both of those are broken by Obamacare, but we won't get into that. <laughs> the rare is the law that says you must do X. All right? Such laws are invariably evil, I think. They require those subject to them to initiate action, not merely to refrain from doing action. The only one that can come yeah. to mind is the Good Samaritan laws in some places, where if you see somebody in distress, you are forced to, by law, assist. Yeah, at risk to yourself. Too. At risk to yourself, yeah. Which is a sacrifice again, potentially. Yeah. And yet most people would. I've, I mean, I've done stupid things. Again, you don't have to legislate myself. stuff no, like that. No, you don't have to. And, you know, like doctors used to say, uh, you're, not, you know, you're not supposed to do harm. But to, to do good under the force of law, that's a different thing. And it's like the physician's axiom, you know, first do no harm. Uh, laws that demand the initiation of action to do good, by definition, do harm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. They violate the consent of the governed. That's the biggest harm it does. And that's a moral transgression of the highest order. Uh, you know, and you can have bad laws that initiate and bad laws that prohibit. I think most bad laws or almost all laws that force you to initiate an action are bad. They initiate a violation of life, liberty, and property. I would include among them conscription, property taxes, income taxes, gun control, gun registrations, and now commercial law, forced health care coverage that you have to go out and buy. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's bad. <laughs> that's just not good. And then you have bad laws that prohibit. But what they prohibit, of course, is what makes them bad. Good laws are the ones that prohibit, too. 
but bad laws prohibit consensual behavior. They actually prohibit freedom, trade. We see that in drug laws and monopolies and censorship. You can't sell your own organs. You can't even leave them to anybody, you know, in your in your estate after death, which would I think solve the whole shortage of organ problem. And of course, private health insurance, competition, and all the rest. These are bad laws that prohibit prohibiting our choices to make better choices for ourselves. So, you know, that's where we're at. Now, we're coming to the bottom of the hour again, and uh, I want to continue with Dr. Tom Dorman, who spoke here at the un- university, and he's going to talk a little bit about insurance and, and the actual place that healthcare has in our actual lives and day-to-day life. It's not this big emergency thing that the government keeps wanting to make it out to be, like everybody's going to die if they don't have insurance. This is so far from the truth, it's, it's just amazing. But the thing to be aware of with Dr. Dorman, which I have explained on the show before, when we played them before, is that he is a practicing physician who practiced at length in Britain, in Canada, and in the United States. And he made many government submissions and sat by side by side with uh, various politicians. In fact, Robert, you and I were talking, I think we're going to take that video and put it up on the Just Right site sometime in the future, his entire presentation. It is excellent. He's a good talker. But here he is, and we'll be back after the break. So insurance has within it the concept of voluntary, and we need to maintain that intellectual, that essential point when we speak about the word insurance. So um, universal insurance, mandatory insurance, compulsory insurance is exactly what insurance is not. And we need to be careful with the use of words. Um, It is not first dollar coverage. Uh, Those of you who live in the United States know that since the McCarran-Ferguson Act uh, introduced during the Roosevelt administration in the Second War, uh, what is called health insurance is subsidized by the workplace. In other words, if the employer pays pays the premium, then there is no tax consequence. So for every dollar, uh, you get a dollar's worth of, quote, health care. While if you buy your health insurance with post-tax dollars, you only get 50 cents worth. That, of course, is an enormous incentive for people to seek benefits rather than wages, benefits being the wrong word, of course, but um, that is an immense subsidy introduced by the Roosevelt administration and never repealed, whereby everybody gets this insurance through their workplace. That, of course, is a, a major tragedy to the exercise of freedom of choice in in deciding what you'd like to do about your health. And of course, that leads to first dollar coverage. By the way, does anybody here have footwear insurance? (laughs) Why not? You're laughing at me. In what way is the difference? If you need to brush your teeth or take appropriate nutrient support or have a proper diet, or uh, have ordinary preventative measures, which are clearly more beneficial than corrective measures for your health, why do you want an insurance adjuster employed by the government or an insurance agent to make the determination for you? People are demanding that their mammograms and pap smears and prostate examinations be paid for by the insurance here's this wrong word again, by the health insurance. And it's ridiculous, just as ridiculous as uh, getting insurance for your foot care. You don't expect the insurance company to pay when you purchase a pair of shoes or clothing or transport or um, of, of food.
us because this morning Kurt touched on the issue of a right equals somebody else's obligation. It's a necessary connection. So when the, your government gives you health insurance as a right, by definition it is an obligation of somebody else. But the politician, that Minister of Health, he wasn't sitting in the office advising patients about the health or working in the operating room. It, it was I who was doing that. So he imposed an obligation on me through the force of taxation and the police. That's called slavery in straightforward language. So the serfdom of the medical profession clearly destroys their initiative and ambition, which is one of the reasons that there is a deterioration in the quality of healthcare. Is, um, it, people always say that healthcare is a necessity. We can't do without it. Can anyone think of something a little more important that you need first for your life? Food, water, food, transport, uh, shelter. These all are more pro proximal human needs. And I place education well ahead of, of, um, of uh, doctoring as well. So doctoring is not an absolute necessity. I mean, the evidence for that is simple. Modern medicine arrived approximately 150 years ago, and prior to that, it was fairly useless. Did the government regulate it in those days? No. Did the Romans regulate their doctoring? No, they didn't have any useful measures. So we notice the coincidence of the appearance of government centralized regulation with the arrival of efficient medical care. I wonder if it's merely a coincidence or if there is an issue of control. And the tools that the um, forces behind the scene use is they program your mind to think it's a necessary service. And they do that mostly with fear. What if I get a heart attack? Who's going to pay for my car transplant? Is the kind of fear that's promoted and switch your televisions on and you get this kind of subliminal message every day in almost all programs. And all these fun programs about emergency rooms and so on all contain the subliminal message that it's based on fear. And yet the most important thing you can do for your health is the thing I listed earlier. Avoid accident and smoking and excessive alcohol and eat well. Welcome back to Just Right where we're talking about Obamacare today on CHRW. And I understand we have our Euro correspondent Paul Lambert on the phone from Sweden. Paul, are you there? Yes, hi. How are you doing, gentlemen? Hi, Paul. Hello, Paul. Good. Um, there's, there's two things that really bother me just with respect to this uh, decision mm. by the Supreme Court. Um, the first one is that uh, uh, Judge Roberts, I think his name was, uh, is he really being a judge? From what I understand, he was sort of introducing a new argument in his, uh, in his actual decision, in his ruling. Um, even the U.S. administration never said that this would be a tax. And so while the Supreme Court is supposed to be that sort of final stopgap to protect individual rights against the runaway government, it really seemed that he was helping the Supreme Court to bend over backwards to find a legitimate way out. Yes, it seemed that way to me, too. That's why I sort of put in that thing, he, there we run rings around you logically type of thing, because like he was actively trying to find a way in the Constitution to uh, allow Obamacare to pass, rather than address the, the question that came up from the people who were uh, bringing it to, to trial, to the court in the first place. You, as a judge, you're expected to either say that, yes, um, your argument passes, or it does not. Not that your argument fails, but here's another argument you could have used, but I found it for you, so now we can pass this. 
Exactly. That's what I, I, I found most troubling about that. Um, secondly, though, what I, I found... Uh, what I found downright obnoxious by at this point in time in history, anyway, is just how naive a lot of the, the pundits were about how there were so many people seemed so surprised that the Supreme Court would uphold this decision. And you know, I've heard uh, comments from both liberal and conservative commentators that uh, that this this act would not, uh, the, you know, this act would not survive the Supreme Court. But uh, maybe I'm just coloured from my own experience in Europe. But as a rule. Any sort of measure that would concentrate more power in the hands of the state at the expense of the individual is going to pass, period. And really any sort of, on the other way, if uh, any sort of measure that would return more individual choice into the hands of the people at the expense of some state power will typically not pass, but if so, just with profound acrimony and difficulty. But consider in your own country how hard any discussion of even allowing private medical care in Canada is. So I think it's really, really naive for people to think that this would not pass. There would be some loophole. Uh, it just turned out to be a little more easier than I, yeah. than I thought it would be. I think you, it's really... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, your, your attitude is obviously cynical, but it's actually correct, and I agree with it. But we have to be cynical in this, because of every time we go to the Supreme Court, whether it's the death United States taxes. or Canada... That's, Benjamin Franklin was cynical. It's a certainty, yes, death and taxes. So you're accurate in that, and you're cynical, and I share your cynicism. And um, you're right, the pundits got it wrong. But you know something, having read, I read uh, most of the decision, I guess, from Roberts. It's almost 200 pages long, so I couldn't get all of it. And I read a little bit from the dissenting judges. And my estimation is that, you know, it does seem to be constitutional. I mean, but that's not the point. It's constitutional because of these loopholes. Yes, they can tax under Article 1, Section 1, the government can tax, impose taxes for basically anything they want even though it's called the general welfare. But general welfare back in 1783 was not the same general welfare we, we take it for granted today to be. That didn't mean social yeah. programs. Oh, it's just far too open to interpretation. I think that's part of the problem as well. well so there you go. That's yeah. why we're here, doing our own interpretation. <laughs> okay, I, I won't distract you more from your trains of thought, but okay. I just really wanted to give a, give a word. Thanks, right, Paul. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's interesting. And there's a fellow was living with socialism in in the midst of it there in Sweden. Uh, you know, I, I was reading uh, again from John Stossel's book where he, where he makes a fascinating point. He actually says that one of America's biggest health care problems is not that 48 million people lack insurance. It's that 250 million Americans have too much of it. Isn't that an interesting take? Hmm. He says, by insuring so much of our health care, we ensure that we are blind to its cost. Third-party payment destroys the shopping process that is the essence of a market. The end result, everyone gets stuck with a higher bill. And listen to this example. The Guttmacher Institute says women paid an average $372 for abortions when the women or a charity paid the fee. By contrast, the bill for abortion in hospitals was $5,407 from $300 to, or $400 to $5,400. It's a big reason that why the price of health care has risen about twice the rate of inflation. When someone else pays, costs go up. The truth is, almost all people do get health care, even if they don't have health insurance, he writes. And then Stossel explains how employer-based health insurance came into being. Apparently, Robert, during World War II, the American government made it against the law to give employees raises. So in order to attract and retain employees in an otherwise competitive marketplace, employers started offering benefit packages. That was the only thing you could do. Then the government complicated things when it gave 
better tax advantages to employer-paid insurance premiums than to the private ones. So people started getting the the, the employer-paid ones. And thus, as Stossel puts it, quote, America got stuck with employer-based health insurance, end quote, which he thinks is especially dumb because the average American changes jobs once every four years. So he has to constantly change plans. Then he writes, after Obamacare passed, medical costs rose, and some companies dropped health insurance altogether. I, I confronted an Obamacare lobbyist about that. He said those unintended consequences are, quote, not a problem. He changed the subject by saying that under Obamacare, people can get preventative care. Prevention is the favorite of the policy elite. Well, that's something we ran into quite a while ago, eh, Robert? Yes, yes, indeed. If Stossel had seen Freedom Party's Election 11 TV ad on this, he would have seen Tommy Douglas himself explain right from the outset that socialized health care was incapable of making sick people well. Its only value in the long term was in preventative medicine, which you know, to me is non-medicine. It's the don't get sick philosophy, which is literally one of the pieces of advice we constantly get from both the media and politicians today. Don't get sick. Got to prevent yourself. Well, you're going to get sick. That's what the hospital's there for, but that's not how they look at it. And, you know, all socialized systems depend on a series of lies and misrepresentations to support them. Stossel points to Michael Moore's sick movie, Sicko, in which Moore claims that Cubans, quote, get better health care than Americans because they believe in preventative medicine, end quote. And he says, all the, world, all the world health organizations have confirmed that if there's one thing they do right in Cuba, it's health care. There's very little debate about that, he says. But as Stossel observes, it's true that a United Nations report claimed that Cubans live longer than Americans, but the UN just reports what the Cuban government tells them. Governments, especially socialist ones, lie. Twenty years ago, Soviet officials insisted there were no poor people living in Russia. Why would anybody believe Cuban health statistics? Cuba claims low infant mortality, but doctors there tell us that if a baby dies soon after birth, they simply don't count the baby as ever having lived. There you go. Change the statistics, eh? He also reports that the British National Health Service recently made the pathetic promise to reduce the waiting time for hospital care to four months. Have a toothache? The wait to see dentists is so long that some Brits pull their own teeth. One man made headlines in England for using novel dental tools on himself, pliers and vodka. <laughs> and so, you know, you can see the whole situation. And, and, and what's... I'm going to get to the, our own media a little bit later. But uh, then he talks about the cost and un, unsustainability, the complete futility of the waste and, and everything about it, right? And this is again from John Stossel. He says, it's, it's high time the American government did less for the elderly. I know it is forbidden to say things like that, but Medicare is unsustainable. Now get this. It has an astounding $34 trillion unfunded liability. That means politicians promised us $34 trillion more in benefits than they can pay. Medicare is a Ponzi scheme. America locked up Bernie Madoff for one of those, but Medicare is a bigger one. In fact, calling it a Ponzi scheme may be too nice. A Ponzi scheme may involve some investment, but there's no investing going on here. There is no trust fund. Politicians spend the money immediately as soon as it comes in. The trust fund is an accounting gimmick. Future Medicare payments or benefits will have to come directly out of young people's paychecks. Like Social Security, Medicare is a pyramid scheme. The coming entitlements bankruptcy is the biggest threat to America's future. I'm not optimistic about this one, writes Stossel. 
So, you know, so-called universal socialized health care is a complete fraud from the beginning. And I think to call it a Ponzi scheme is, is an unwarranted kindness. You know, participants in Ponzi schemes get ripped off voluntarily. They join them because they think they're going to make a killing, and some of them do. A lot of them did. A lot of people made money with, with Madoff. They made off with the money before, <laughs> before he did. And, you know, so they're victims of their own stupidity caused by their own greed for the unearned. But universalized and, and, and universal social health care, which is a bad name for it, it makes it sound like everybody gets health care. No, you all get taxed. The health care you get is something willy-nilly, and you probably have to pay for most of it anyway. It's not voluntary. It's plain outright robbery. And, and, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Instead of protecting life, liberty, and property, it violates life, liberty, and property, which is not governing. You no longer have a government when governments start running the economy. That's it's not ruling. governing anymore. That's ruling now. And then, of course, final note that Stossel says here. In the year after Obamacare passed, some of its biggest proponents asked to be exempted from it. More than 100 organizations got waivers. And the largest group that got an exemption? Well, of course, the teachers' union. <laughs> and, of course, the legislators themselves, as That's we right. heard. Congress right. and Senate are exempt from so, this So they exempt bill. themselves all from this stuff. And uh, it's just terrible how the whole thing is sold with a lie, a lying set of figures. America's going bankrupt. And the government, I can see why the move to fascism. Fascism, fascism is the next state from socialism. With a $34 trillion unfunded liability in just Medicare, and that's just for the old folk, to extend that plan to others, they, they obviously can't afford it. So how do they do it? They make the individual pay directly without even going through the government directly, except indirectly if you don't do what they say. Then you end up in a jail or somebody else has to pay for you. I don't know how they're even going to work that. Can't get blood from a stone. I don't know how you're going to get all these poor people to sign up for health care benefits. If they couldn't afford it in the first place, that was the, the, the whole the, point. The, it's so insane. <laughs> so uh, good luck with that down there in the States, folks. And you got to be, be watching what's happening up in Canada if you're an American, just to see what potential there is there. Remember, this has nothing to do with health care itself. This is all about um, the payment of it. Going to take another break now, and when we come back, some conclusionary comments on this, Robert, I guess? Well, maybe a, a short anecdote from a doctor. That'll be interesting. How could you drop me into it like that? What, a small omission from the brief? We can't foresee everything but a full, independent inquiry. I don't want an inquiry any more than you do, but if you're drowning and somebody throws you a rope, you grab it. That wasn't a rope, that was a noose. <laughs> you should have stood up for the department, that's what you're there for. No, Humphrey, it won't do. I prepared myself thoroughly for yesterday's question time, but nowhere in my brief was there any suggestion that you'd been juggling with the figures so that I'd give misleading replies to the House. Minister, you said you wanted the administration figures reduced, didn't you? Yes. So, we reduced the figures. But only the figures, not the number of administrators. <laughs> well, of course not. Well, that's not what I meant. Well, really, Minister, one is not a mind reader, is one? <laughs> you said reduce the figures, so we reduced the figures. And another thing. Hmm? How did this get out? Another leak. Uh, this isn't a department, it's a colander. <laughs> How are we supposed to govern responsibly if backbenchers get all the facts? <laughs> well, at least the inquiry gives us a little time. So does a time bomb. Yes. Haven't you got a disposal squad? Disposal squad? Couldn't we get the independent inquiry to exonerate the department? Do you mean rig it? No, 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 no. Well, yes. Minister?
You're a man of integrity in both universes, Mr. Spark. You must return to your universe. I must have my captain back. I shall operate the transporter. You have two minutes and ten seconds. For that time, I have something to say. How long before the Hulkin prediction of galactic revolt is realized? Approximately 240 years. The inevitable outcome? The Empire shall be overthrown, of course. The illogic of waste, Mr. Spark. The waste of lives, potential, resources, time. I submit to you that your empire is illogical because it cannot endure. I submit that you are illogical to be a willing part of it. You have one minute and 23 seconds. If change is inevitable, predictable, beneficial, doesn't logic demand that you be a part of it? One man cannot summon the future. But one man can change the present. Push till it gives. You can defend yourself better than any man in the fleet. What about it, Spock? What will it be? Past or future? Tyranny or freedom? It's up to you. It is time. In every revolution, there's one man with a vision. Captain Kirk, I shall consider it. Of course, Captain Kirk there could have been talking about Obamacare in the United States as the empire that will inevitably collapse and be overthrown because of its unsustainable liabilities. The illogic of waste. The illogic of waste, exactly. That that clip just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> we <laughs> need and it our also spo- spoke to the cynicism that we were just talking about. There is no one man with a vision out there on this yet in the biggest picture of the of the political sphere. No, know? as a matter of fact, Mitt Romney apparently has come up with his own, uh, when he was governor of his own state, the same sort of scheme that Obamacare has. And um, he's backtracking on it now, saying that, oh, okay, so I'm going to repeal Obamacare, even though he was for it. Yes. So, yeah, there's no men of vision out there in the American political uh, system. So, it's it's... Well, remember the inevitability the, of waste. The, the, the sad <laughs> thing is that doing the right thing for the public, whether American, Canadian, or whatever, is has come into conflict with doing what politicians want to benefit for themselves. It's not always money. It can just be power. It can be a number of other things. Sure. Votes. Yeah. Now, uh, the earlier part of the show, I brought up Diane Francis's mm. opinion about this particular uh, issue Obamacare and her support for it. Now, if you went online and read the article as I did, some of the comments that people submitted to her were very unkind to her, and quite deservedly. But one person particularly um, had some very unkind and unbelievable things to say to her about her stance on this. And he pointed her in the direction of uh, American Thinker and an article by Stella Paul called A Surgeon Cuts to the Heart of the Obamacare Nightmare. And I'd just like to read a little bit about it because I found it very poignant. So this is written by a surgeon? No, this is written by Stella Paul, who's talking about a surgeon. Okay. Um, And uh, I'll quote from it. The day the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Obamacare, a friend called me. He's an extremely dedicated, much-loved surgeon, and he was frustrated and livid in equal measure. Quote, I've actually had a lot of experience working in all kinds of uh, environments, he began. I've worked in a government-run socialized medical care system, and I saw the waste and efficiency. 
the longer, peop longer people worked in that system, the less they work, the less they wanted to do. Because the more you, the more you wanted to do, the more they dumped on you. So after a while, you stop doing it, because they're not paying you to do anymore. Why should you do a difficult case, a difficult surgery that will take you hours and hours to do? You might start out wanting to do it, but after a while, you just run out of energy because there's no incentive. You have to be a superhuman being to continue to work in that system and not be worn down by it because nobody wanted to work. It would take you an hour to turn over the surgical room. In my private practice, now it takes 10 minutes. And I saw tremendous waste, closets of stuff that never got used. Nobody cared. Capitalism has completely transformed my subspecialty. When I was in training, a common procedure that I do now took 40 minutes and people needed a month of recovery. Now it takes 10 minutes and people go back to work almost immediately. And all of these improvements were driven by financial incentive. Capitalism has had a tremendously positive effect on patient care and outcome in my specialty. But when I go to meetings now, I see that there's very little innovation going on. Everything being, everything's been impacted by Obamacare, which, among other things, raises taxes on medical devices. You know, doctors are people, and we're being hammered on all sides here. It's the paperwork, it's insurance, it's transitioning to electronic medical records so the government can get their mitts into your practice. It's lawsuits, it's rising overhead and decreasing compensation. It's stress upon stress upon stress. And a lot of doctors are going to say, forget it. I don't want to do this anymore. Guys that are five or ten years older than me are just going to give up and walk away. Why should I be a slave to the government? You know, it used to be that doctors would do charity work at a charity hospital. Nobody wants to do it anymore because you're too overwhelmed. And he goes on, The American Medical Association threw us under the bus. Even though only 18% of doctors are belonging to it, these people are ivory tower academics and they're liberals. Most of them are in academic medicine. They get a salary with some sort of incentive bonus. They show up to work and they go home. They're not in the trenches like me, figuring out how to compete with other doctors and pay for, medic, uh, pay for malpractice insurance and how to hire four people I need to implement the electronic medical records and two people I need to deal with insurance. And as a doctor, I get it handed to me both ways. My taxes are raised, my fees are lowered. When my dad was 91, he says, he had a heart attack and ended up with a stent. He had two more good years after that, before he died. After Obamacare, some government employee is going to decide that he's too old for this and not approve him for that procedure. It's just a feeling of helplessness. The only organizations that are fighting it for doctors are the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and Doctors for Patient Care. So, Stella Paul says, after he hung up, I went to the website of Doctors for Patient Care and found this statement from its president, Dr. Hal Schurz. The Supreme Court disappointed the majority of Americans who have voiced their opposition to Obamacare by upholding significant portions of this truly abysmal law. Their decision has left Americans now wondering what it is that the federal government can't compel them to do. This is perhaps the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court and emphasizes the importance of making the correct decision for chief executive who controls who sits on the bench. Now, if you want to cure the sickness that's ailing America, says Paul, you'll find a powerful remedy in the voting booth in November, because that's what she's talking about, is the chief executive who appoints judges like Judge Roberts, who passed this bill 
under dubious circumstances. So that was by Stella Paul, and um, it's written in the American Thinker. The fact that one even has to go to the polling booth yes, to do anything about being able to take care of your health is an obscenity in the extreme. And what's being confused here is the whole scam of universal socialized health care, which is free health care from first dollar coverage, which is, that's another moral obscenity, because it's so wasteful, with the idea that we all have this fear of losing assets. That's what Dr. Do- Tom Dorman called it. He says, we, this isn't health care insurance, it's asset insurance. That's right. We're not afraid necessarily about the heart attack. We're afraid that we're going to go bankrupt. That's what scares us more. Have and to sell our house or not have a vacation, like Diane Francis says. And if you could buy health care insurance with large deductibles where only the, th- the major issues would be covered by health care, you know, heart attacks, cancer, things like that, and for people with pre-existing conditions, again, they're a small minority. What is the government's answer? Put everybody on the healthcare system because a few have a pre-existing condition. Well, there's a lot of ways to deal with that pre-existing condition. Maybe it doesn't require insurance. Maybe it's cheap. <laughs> and nobody ever says that, right? Is a pre-existing condition a heart attack? <laughs> like, that's, that's the expensive thing, right? And there are a lot of medicines that are very expensive. But that can be accommodated as a last resort if by government and certainly through a number of other ways. Insurance companies can accommodate it. Of course. So, so this idea, and again, remember when they brought all this in, 90% of people already had private insurance. So they brought in a 100% plan for... You know, That's actually true. 90% of Americans today are covered in some way or another. Yeah, they won't be after, after Obamacare. And remember, I think Ontarians should remember that 86% of Ontarians were fully covered yep. uh, back in 67 when we introduced uh, socialized medicine here. And so now nobody has private coverage. No, and nobody has even public coverage. You just have this promise that whatever resources are available, at the time you get sick, mm-hmm. maybe you'll get some of it, because that'll be rationed to you. And the sacred cow has to be killed. It, it certainly does, and I guess that's the end of today's show. We've got to kill the... We've got to move on, as, <laughs> as Ed says. So shall we do so? Join us again next week when we will return once again on our journey in the right direction. We expect you here. See ya. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the Everything will be are we or are we not agreed that there is simply no point in running a hospital solely for the benefit of the staff? Well, that is not how I would have expressed the question. Well, it's how I've expressed the question. Indeed. <laughs> Very well, how would you express it? Well, of course, at the end of the day, one of a hospital's prime functions is patient care. One? What else? But until we have the money for nursing and medical staff, it is a function that we are not able to pursue. Perhaps in 18 months or so. 18 months? Well, it's perhaps by then we may be able to open a couple of wards. No, Humphrey, it's got to be now, and more than a couple. Well, I suppose we could form uh, an interdepartmental committee to examine the feasibility of monitoring a proposal for admitting patients at an earlier date. <laughs> How long would that take to report? Oh, not long. <laughs> How long? Oh, about uh, 18, 18 months. 18 months, yeah. <laughs>